Hello, my name is Mark Gibson, and you're listening to the podcast version of the Chagask Signpost series, a weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. Good morning, everybody, and you're very welcome to this morning's uh, webinar. Uh, Good morning, Good morning, Catherine. Uh, we're also joined uh, by Declan Byrne from the SUS project in, in Wicklow. It's an, an EIP project. Thanks, Pat. The broadcasts are, are supported by Food Drink Ireland Skillnet, uh, National Rural Network and Dairy Sustainability Ireland. Uh, Declan, you have been working with the SUS project now for a number of years on succumbent from, from Chagas. That's right, yeah. Um, I actually started working with the Hill Farmers in Wicklow back in 2000, and I was part of the group which actually developed the Suez project. And um, in 2018, I was seconded across to act as project manager up until the project finishes at the end of this year. And the, the project itself is one of a group of, of EIP projects that, that focus on uh, upland farming, which is a major challenge. It's one of the big environmental challenges we have is, is trying to protect the uplands and, and have them managed in a, in a way that's environmentally uh, sustainable into the long term. Our project is funded under the European Innovation Partnership. Um, we were given funding of uh, 1.95 million for a five-year project. And kind of the aim of our project is that we're looking for ways to support farmers to deliver better quality habitats in the uplands. Because the farmers are there doing the work. So how do we support them? There are a number of other projects uh, working in the uplands. And uh, I think there's about five other projects working on upland areas. And then there's a number working at, looking at uh, different elements of the biodiversity and that type of thing. Okay, well, I'm really looking forward to, to seeing the, the, the work that you do. So if you want to share your, your uh, screen with us there, and we, we'll let you go ahead. Okay, so um, as Pat said, uh, our project, it's uh, funded under the European Innovation Partnership, and the title, I suppose, gives a, uh, says what we're about, uh, Uplands, so Sustainable Upland Agri-Environmental Scheme. So as I said earlier there, our uh, objective is to come up with ways that we can support farmers to manage the hills in a way that delivers better quality habitats. Um, it's a five-year scheme and uh, commenced in 2018, and uh, will run up until the end of uh, this year. Okay, so uh, just a little bit about kind of both the background where we are in Wicklow, the habitat types we have, we have uh, blanket bog, we have wet heat, dry heat, upland grassland, much like what you'd expect. Now I'm not going to spend a lot of time on my talk today going through the benefits and what the services all these different habitats uh, provide, because I think last week we had a very good uh, uh, overview of it and Brian talked about what they were doing up in uh, uh, Glen and I think he gave a good overview, so there's no point in me repeating it here today. Other than just to say look at uh, within Wicklow we have uh, Wicklow Dublin Mountains we have uh, some habitats with very very good things uh, we've good quality habitats we have some of those uh, uh, plants and animals that are uh, on the red list and that uh, we also have some very bad things we have areas uh, where there's eroding blanket bog and I'd hate to do the figures to see what our carbon uh, uh, losses from those sites are. We also have areas of erosion, uh, some of them to do with uh, recreation users, walkers and paths, but also uh, other areas that have erosion. We have a, discovered a number of areas on our hills where vegetation has gone very thin and they're actually in the, on, in the balance now at the minute as to whether can they recover or do they deteriorate further when we get this uh, uh, erosion on them. So 
Uh, other issues, uh, again, similar to most of the other upland areas, we have problems with header, tall header. Uh, we'll be talking about header that's waist high there. Uh, picture of fate there in the middle, uh, our ecologist, and we have bracken, and it's uh, five, six foot tall. It's not just small, and it's over vast areas of the hills. And the thing with the bracken, I suppose, uh, the biggest issue is that it's actually spreading up the hills over time. We also have problems with gorse. Uh, uh, so, um, one of our biggest issues that we have in the Dublin Wicklow Mountains would be. Um, fires and we're talking here about not just fires that happened last year or the year before we have a legacy of burning here over the last maybe 50 60 years and kind of what's happened in the past is if we have some of these fires let them be at the right time of the year or the wrong time of the year it doesn't matter but the hill starts to recover and starts to repair itself but before it gets there to do that repair there's another fire comes along and uh, uh, causes more damage so what we get is over time each and every fire uh, causes cumulative damage and gets worse on the bottom left or the bottom right of your picture there, there's a picture of one of the sites in the sewers project. And it's an area up in Dublin. And on that site alone, there were 16 fires recorded over a 20 year period. Now, they weren't all started on the commonage. A number of them would have spread in from surrounding commonages. But as you can see there, uh, that habitat is completely destroyed and I don't know if it'll ever recover. Uh, we're familiar, we're used to hearing about all the various animals and birds and uh, on the red list and some of them becoming uh, fallen numbers and becoming rare and stuff like that. But we do need to remember about these ads. We don't want these to become extinct either. These are the farmers. And let's be honest, uh, fate or ecologist, uh, me or the Department of Agriculture, there's none of us going up there on the hill to mind those sheep or to do the work. So we do have to remember that these are the lads we want to do the work for us. So we have to keep them uh, going forward. And like all sectors of agriculture, um, particularly in the dry stock side, populations getting older. So we do need to uh, keep them with us and uh, try to work with them. Okay, so just to give a little bit of background to the Suez project, uh, back in 2011, Wicklow Uplands Council, which is a representative body for all the major uh, stakeholders in the uplands, they could see there was an issue with the quality of the, the habitats up in the hills. So they put together a committee uh, to look at the issue. And uh, over a couple of years, that committee met and uh, produced a report there in 2013. And basically what that report did was it highlighted the need for some sort of a management or some sort of a scheme for to come up with a plan for the Wicklow Dublin uplands. Uh, following on from that then in 2015, we had a master student, uh, Fergal Maguire. He was doing a Chagas Masters. And what he did was quite simple. He went out to talk to the farmers, find out what was happening on the ground and why these were happening. So I suppose when the call for these EIPs came, uh, we had all our uh, homework done. So what we had with two things, we had a very good idea of what we wanted to do, what we wanted to achieve, how we were going to do it. But more importantly, we knew that we had the support and the backing of all the stakeholders uh, behind us. So uh, when it came to writing up the, our uh, project, we, we were ready to hit the ground running. Um, so we were. Um, so just a little bit about the way the, the, the SUS project operates. Uh, all the EIP projects, there are kind of, uh, there's a, an operation group which sits and it, uh, it directs the, um, the project and ensures that it's delivered pro properly. So when we were doing up our uh, application, we had to put together an operation group uh, for, for this purpose. So when we sat down and think about 
what type of people or who do we need on this um, operation group? Well, obviously we felt we needed all the relevant stakeholders. So yes, we do have farmers on it. We have National Parks and Wildlife Service. We have Chagas uh, and that type of thing. But also this was a big project to deliver and none of us involved had any experience of this. So we felt we needed other outside expertise to come in and do it. So we actually went out and we recruited uh, various people with backgrounds, uh, various different backgrounds and knowledge to ensure that our operation group would have the, the knowledge and the, the um, ability to deliver such a big ambitious project. So uh, as I say, what we've ended up with is quite a diverse group of people with, in terms of their backgrounds and also their skill sets. Uh, one of the big um, positive or the, the big strengths of this operation group, I think, is not so much that it's local, even though most of them are, but that we have all the skill sets we need. Uh, we have the um, experience to be able to deliver such a large project. We have the um, stakeholders. And also uh, the one thing about this group is it's always been very um, proactive. It's always looking to the future to see what we can deliver. It's never been about sitting back looking, look, what can we do with farmers in this, uh, that we have in the Suez Project Minute? It's always about the bigger picture, what can we deliver for the future? I think there's lessons to be learned there for uh, any future EIP projects and also for the proposed uh, um, cooperation projects and uh, the makeup of what the project teams or local project teams uh, would have uh, there. So as I say, very strong, very forward looking, and it has helped me greatly to deliver the, the Suez project. So just a kind of little bit about our participants. I won't bore you with figures on that, but at the minute we have 25 participants within the Suez project. Uh, 14 of those would be commonages. They range in size from 58 hectares up to 1,025 hectares. In terms of shareholder numbers, they vary from two up as far as 10 shareholders on our largest number of shareholders. I'm not going to give you averages here because once we start talking about averages, it kind of dilutes everything out. These are all unique individual sites and they all have their own uh, individual um, issues and uh, challenges. So uh, that's the range of them. We also took in a number of non-commonage sites because look, Within the, with the Dublin Mountains, we have a lot of areas that are non-commonage, but that are um, equally important in terms of the quality of the habitats. So we have 11 of those sites in at the minute, and they range in size from 6 hectares to 1,745 hectares. Now, the reason we have a couple of small size, uh, sites in was that in uh, 21, we opened uh, the project for a new tranche of um, applicants, and we didn't know what was out there. So we said, we didn't make any stipulations as to who was or wasn't allowed to uh, come in because we wanted to just throw the, wet, throw the net fairly wide and see what we get back to figure out what is out there. And some of these smaller sites are actually very, very important. One thing I would like to uh, comment on here is in the past, when we've been looking at these sites or from agri-environmental agri point of view, we've been looking at the target areas, the SACs, SPAs and that, and also commonage areas. But we actually have a large number of sites, some of them maybe not that terribly big, in our hills that are not commonages and they're not SACs, but they have very, very good quality habitats and are important uh, to, to, to bring forward. One of the best quality habitats we have up in Kilmashogue in County Dublin is actually fits the bill there. And when you go up there, it's very good quality and you look around you and the similar areas on all the surrounding hills would be all going into forestry. So I think it's something we do need to bear in mind going forward that it's not just about commonages and SACs, it's about what's actually up there on the sites. So um, kind of one of the big innovations with us, uh, with the Suez project is how we deal with the commonages. And um, it is 
a major challenge. I don't think it's one that our agri-environmental schemes to date have actually got to grips with at all, and how we deal with the common ridges. So I suppose if you take a step back from it, logic would say that if you have an area or a site with five farmers or 10 farmers, different farmers, all farming and managing the same site, if you want to do something with that site, if you want to manage it or want to agree on some plan, you need them all coming together. You can't be just going out talking to one individual at a time. That, Bring them all together is the way we need, we need to approach this. So within the SUS project, what we have done is we formed what we call commonage groups. Now, this is where we brought the, all the shareholders on uh, commonage. We brought them together. We brought them through a training and facilitation process. We got them to form a group. It is this group then who joins the project. It's the group who reads the management plan, the group who delivers the uh, actions uh, that are uh, agreed upon, and the group is responsible for controlling the grazing. So uh, this is not just uh, a case where we bring the lads in some evening, we sit down, they all sign the form, tick a box. Uh, we actually spent quite a bit of time on this and uh, each group developed their own constitution. Why? It's just a set of rules for how they uh, operate themselves. They all develop their own because they have all unique um, circumstances in terms of numbers and uh, make up the different um, uh, uh, groups and that. So, um, we have done this now three times over three tranches. Uh, the reason we wanted to do it like this was, when we were starting out, it was kind of a little bit of a shot in the dark. We didn't know where we were going with it. So we wanted to give ourselves a chance to look at it and to refine the process. So we have gone through it three times now, and uh, we brought in seven colleges there just before Christmas. So at this stage, we have a very, very good, it's a step-by-step -step guide on how to form these college groups. Um, and it is applicable across all the Dublin Weekly Mountains, but also any commonage across the whole country. It is quite applicable. It is something that can be actually scaled up and it is possible to deliver out to farmers. The one thing I would uh, uh, say about it is, it's not a process that can be rushed out. Uh, it's not something they can just bring big numbers of farmers in together and just tick a box to say that they've formed these. These groups take time to form um, and the farmers have to get used to the idea and build a certain amount of trust uh, in the group because we want these uh, groups to be able to um, deliver for the future. It's not just for the length of the sewage project, but going forward, that these groups will be responsible for managing the hills. So uh, I suppose, what do the farmers think of these groups? Uh, it's great for, from my point of view, when we're doing plans, you can just bring all the farmers together. You're not talking to 10 or 11 different individuals, but the farmers, their response has been generally very, very positive. Uh, I suppose, why? Because look, it gives them a little bit of solidarity that they're all in this together. They're not individuals. There's no one individual expected to manage the whole mountain up there. Um, the main thing I suppose it does is that it uh, gives these farmers a forum or an opportunity to have discussions about the hill. Instead of meeting some fella in the mart or maybe stopping them in the tractor going down the road to talk about what's going on in the hill or sheep numbers and that, they come together, they have a dedicated meeting and the sole purpose of that meeting is to discuss what's happening on the hill. That is something that has never happened before. So it makes it easy for them to have those conversations. Um, people tell us, uh, oh, that'll never happen on this college. So there's lads don't get on, and lads don't talk, and sure, it's grand on some of those. But what we found is, and it was pointed out to me maybe afterwards, we have some of those issues in our groups. We have two of our groups now to have issues with people who don't get on and that. And I didn't realize it until it was pointed out to me because what happens at these meetings is, Everybody comes forward, everybody is able to have their say, and if there's issues between individual people, they are part of the door going in, because once you go in there, you're talking to the group, the discussions are about the uh, management of the hill, and all those personal issues are left aside. So it makes it easy for those farmers to actually come forward and get involved and have these this discussions. Um, 
we actually used uh, one of the groups. Uh, we had a relatively serious issue in one of those where one individual did something they shouldn't have had done. I suppose the easy thing for the project would have been just to throw the whole uh, community out altogether. But actually what we done was we brought them together. We used the group. We had all the farmers brought them out. It was during COVID, so it was outside. We were all standing around the yard and everybody in that common age group had a, an opportunity to have their say. We talked it out and actually over time we resolved that issue. They're still with us and I think that group is much stronger now because of that. So again, there's the benefits of how we have used that group. Uh, one of the interesting things we did with these groups uh, last year was uh, we introduced a new uh, score payment system. I'll talk to that about that a little bit later on. But uh, when we calculated the scores, we calculated the payments based on the, the site rather than on the number of farmers. So we calculated a payment that was due for each uh, of the sites. And what we did was we asked the farmers to come up with a mechanism for dividing out that payment among themselves. And I have to say, not one of them came back to say that it should be divided out based on the area that is claimed on BPS. They came back with different uh, solutions or different uh, mechanisms for dividing out. And actually, some of the colleges came back with the same, uh, the same uh, answer, but for very, very different reasons. So what we can take from that is maybe we should be a little bit more creative or we can be a little bit more inventive in how we develop our schemes. We don't have to base everything on the way it has been done in the past. And the farmers are actually open to change and this type of thing. Um, I suppose just the final thing I say about the community groups is, uh, you look at the people there, you see a smile on their face. And actually, um, this is a group from Granamore. There is um, ten of, nine of the 10 shareholders from that group. They, we had, a, had an event there in 2019 before we were all locked up with COVID. And, uh, all of those farmers were delighted to stand out and get their picture taken with Minister Andrew Dial. So look, at, it actually has uh, restored a bit of pride that suddenly instead of these hills being just something there for, for claiming money, there's something of value up there. And I think uh, it's very, very important to get that little element of pride for the people in their place. And uh, if we can have that, it would be much, much easier to get them to do work going forward. So. Um, that's how we deal with the farmers and I suppose, look at, from my point of view, unless you have some way of uh, um, dealing with these farmers as a group, uh, we have the management that if there's agreement made, there's someone that's going to be responsible for delivering it, there's no point going any further. So when we have our college groups then and our individual farmers, it doesn't matter, it's the same thing, we move on then and we start talking about the management plans. So how do we do that? Um, well, I suppose the first thing to say is that um, we haven't a clue what's up on the hills. And nobody else does either, because there are no um, reports, there's no maps or anything else. There are some habitat maps which would identify habitat types on the hills, but there's none of them actually looks to see what the condition of that habitat would be. So first thing we need to do is we need to send somebody out to walk these hills, see what's up there. We uh, hired in an ecologist, Faith Wilson, and she went out, she did a baseline survey. Now, because we are a, a research project with the SUS, uh, our um, Baseline surveys that may have been a bit more uh, detailed than uh, was, would be necessary for a wider scheme going forward. But still, we need somebody to go out and see what's there and to come up with a plan to say, look at what should be there. Now, as I said earlier, fate is not going up there to mind the sheep. I'm not going to do it. I don't see the Department of Agriculture. So we have to involve the farmers. So uh, what we did was we brought the farmers out and we went for a walk out on the hill with the ecologist. And we had some very, very good conversations there. So we did. The, uh, a recurring uh, comment from the farmers would be, look at, this was the first time anybody ever came out to tell them what was important about their hills, why they were designated, and what they should be doing about it. And it was very, very positive. We walked them, we had the uh, discussions, and from that, we developed our management plans.
Now, looking back on it after a couple of years, possibly it didn't go as well as we thought. Why? I think some of the times what the ecologist was saying was not necessarily what the farmers were actually hearing and vice versa. So it was kind of a little bit lost in translation there uh, uh, between farmers looking at it from a production point of view and look, uh, ecologists looking at it from the habitat and environmental point of view. The other thing is that our conversations when we went out there were dictated by where we went on the hills and what we saw. So if we didn't see something on the hills, look, we weren't really talking about it. So what we did now, uh, in 2011 or 21, we had a, a new uh, tranche of people come in. So we developed a training course for them. It involved having an indoor session where we talked about the basics, what are habitats, what type of habitats are up on the hills and what they should look like. Uh, also, we talked a bit about the, the benefits of the habitats, the water quality and uh, the different designations, how they came about and also sheep production. So we kind of gave a basic run through the whole thing and then for the second part of that, we went out on one of our existing sites where we have uh, a lot of work done and we have a lot of these issues. And we, what we talked about indoors, we could go out and we could look at it and had very, very good discussion out on the hill. Me, I think that that process worked excellently, really, really well. I'm not going to lie to you and tell you that we converted them all over to be environmentalists or that. No, but what happened was when I, I met them before Christmas to uh, drop their plans, they knew where I was coming from. They knew, had a much greater appreciation for the difference between management for habitat and managing for um, just sheep production. So uh, very, very positive. The one thing I would say is those training courses, they have to be completed before the farmers do their plans. There's no point in getting farmers to agree to a management plan and two or three years later then putting in this uh, training. It has to be done up front uh, so that the farmers know what they're talking about when it comes to uh, uh, agreeing their management. Uh, the other people that we need to in involve in this is National Parks and Wildlife Service. Just in relation to that photograph, uh, just a reminder that things are difficult in the hills. The day we went up there, I left home, the sun was shining, and we parked the cars down the road. There was a little flurry of snow, and by the time we got to the top of the hill, uh, that's what we came across. So just a reminder, it's not like going out into a grass field or driving the Jeep around. Uh, it is a different environment and presents a lot of challenges. But National Parks and Wildlife Service, most of the land that we are dealing with in the uplands is designated or is part of the national park. So we can't go ahead without those. Uh, now, we have a very, very good working relationship with them at the local level. Um, they've been very, very supportive of what we have done. I know it may not always necessarily be the case in all parts of the country, but uh, I think that relationship that we have built up with them, we have built up an element of trust so that they, they understand and they know what we're doing. And even the relationship between the farmers and the national parks themselves, which in the past would have been very uh, much a, a conflict, but they're coming more and more together. So. Any, any schemes going forward, I think we have to make it easy for to work with National Parks and Wildlife Service. We can't alienate them. They have to be a part of the solution. So they do. And I suppose where do I fit into all this? Uh, I come from an advisory background. So uh, I would have been there as kind of an advisory planner. And basically what I did was kind of a little bit of referee between all sides and helped to come up with a, a plan. Uh, for the, the site. So if we look at what we need we, for these plans, we need somebody to go out and see what's up there. We need the farmers involved. We need the National Parks and Wildlife Service involved for to get the permissions and ARCs and whatever else is required. And then we need somebody to pull that all together into a plan. Um, so these plans then, uh, what are included in these plans? Well, we gave them about various maps, but the one thing we were very, very conscious of, we wanted something very simple. So the actions that they were going to carry, we wanted them 
based, uh, I'll say, easy to read, easy to find. There's no point in giving them 15 pages of a plan that they have to flick through to find out what they're supposed to do. So very, very clear, specific, what work has to be done each year. Uh, so um, just in terms of what works we're doing with them, um, I suppose it's hard to get away from the burden issue. Um, look at... Uh, for the last 20 years, the conversation has been all around the dates and what's the correct dates and the need to be extended and all this. But what we actually did was we worked with what was there. We went out on four different sites. We carried out burning. And uh, our experience of that is, yes, it is possible. It's very, very difficult to organize in terms of weather. And then if you get the weather right, to have the people and all the rest. But it can be done. Uh, but uh, a lot of uh, effort in that. Is there an alternative to doing this burning? Look, we went and we looked at what they are, and there are machines out there on certain sites, it's accessible. You can go out with machines for cutting header, with bigger machines for cutting gorse and that, and you can use tract machines. And even we went as far as using uh, uh, handheld brush cutters where it was inaccessible with uh, machinery. Now, this is all possible, absolutely it is, but it comes at a cost. And I suppose the question we have to ask is, can we justify that cost? And uh, certain circumstances we can, maybe where there's um, priority areas, or uh, it's a priority to get work done in these areas, or maybe uh, this type of work can be justified in preparing sites for uh, future controlled burning and that. Um, one thing I will say about all of this work, it needs to be done as part of a plan. You don't just go out and start at one corner and burn the whole hill up across. Uh, the slide you see there in front of you, the dark areas would be the areas of uh, real tall, dense header, and the light green areas are areas surrounding which would be quite overgrazed. So as I say, we wanted to go in and we wanted to open up those uh, overgrown areas uh, uh, rather than just starting at one corner and working our way through. So look, at, it has to be done part of a long-term plan. It's not just something you decide to go up and some morning and see where do we start and, and uh, go ahead. What other works we do, and obviously bracken is a huge issue, issue so we have been looking at it we've been doing various uh, options with spraying and also we use a bracken uh, a bracken bruiser and we trialed use of uh, weed wiper um other things other actions then is um planting trees we've been removing invasive species including sitka spruce and uh, rhododendron we help farmers to upgrade their uh, uh, access facilities and some of the things we're looking at towards the future is maybe drain blocking and, and uh, use of uh, willow uh, for um, reinforcing banks. We're actually involved in a project with uh, National Parks and Wildlife Service at the minute. It's a, a restoration project for Bear Peat area. So these are things, and basically what we want to figure out here is where do farmers fit into this? Are these something that can be included in farmer schemes that they can deliver the work for us? Now, I suppose before we're going forward, we should say that the main management tool we have available to us in the uplands is grazing, uh, cattle and sheep. And uh, unless we can get that right, any of the other works are uh, kind of uh, just wasting our time because long term, the, we have to get the grazing right. We have managed to reintroduce cattle onto a number of sites. Uh, and so far, the ecologists and also National Parks and Wildlife Service, because of the way they graze, different to the sheep, they're less selective, and the movement of those and the breaking up vegetation, they're very, very happy with the, the results. Horses do a similar role, but uh, we don't have the same tradition of having horses in the uplands, not in the east of the country. Uh, any grazing plans, we do have to remember these lads, a major issue in Wicklow, and they do come in and contribute to the grazing. Uh, unfortunately, nobody actually knows how many they are, and I know a number of occasions going out walking these hills, you could quite often see 50, 60, up to 100 deer in a herd going out across the hill. So obviously, their grazing has to be taken into account. 
the slide there just to show what the grazing patterns are in the Wicklow Hill or Wicklow Dublin Mountains. These are from a summary of the four sites we had originally in 2019. And what we can see here is the lines across the middle there, they would be the min-max figures from GLOSS. Not saying they're right, but it just gives a rough idea where the numbers should be. And the reality is that during the summer months here, when the O's are weaned, uh, to the hill we have way too many sheep on the hill and most of the rest of the year there's very very little now some of you would probably say well sure what difference sure doesn't have a job over time but actually it doesn't it's very important the time of the year if we have the sheep up there during those summer months uh, what they do is they congregate and they concentrate their grazing on the grassy areas and areas where have been recovered from uh, burning and that and they won't go into the taller header areas at all and what we see on the sites that this type of grazing pattern, we have areas of overgrazing and undergrazing very close together on the same sites. So changing, chopping and changing in terms of the maximum min numbers is not going to change that or resolve that. So what we need to do is we need to get sheep out on the hills in these periods, the January, February period uh, after mating. Why? Because that time of the year, the header is a bit softer after some of the frosts. There's very little other... Uh, vegetation available for them and we have used the uh, feed buckets and that to uh, encourage farmers to keep the sheep out for longer and also to encourage the, the sheep into areas that they don't normally go with the taller vegetation also then in kind of the april may early june period that's when growth starts up on the the hills so there'll be a fresh uh, growth on the header and the sheep will graze it at that time of the year as well and that involves getting ewes and lambs dry hoggets dry sheep up early in the year so it's about the time of the year as well as just the the uh, numbers of sheep uh, one of our issues, I suppose, is uh, we have to have the right type of sheep. Uh, there's no point in putting up big fat lowland joes. They'll go up. We've seen that has happened with uh, people in other environmental schemes, and uh, they'll just go up in the row at the gate, uh, waiting for you to bring up a, a bale or a bag of nuts to them. So we have to have the right type of sheep, sheep that will go out and live forage on the hill and uh, uh, during the winter months. It's not just about a couple of months during the summer. When we were reintroducing the cattle, um, farmers were asking me what breed should they get and all I said to them was look at get something that won't die up there because the stock we want to put out there we want them to be able to go around eat the vegetation and live up there without having to provide supplementary feeding that's when they're doing their work for us and just the final thing I'll just say about the, the, the grazing is these are two sites we have had in the project from the beginning uh, I could never get my head around uh, the, the sheep numbers, what was happening. Site one, when, I, when we spoke to the farmer, uh, it was way undergrazed, and site two was way overgrazed. But that's not actually what we found when we went out to walk the site. Uh, so what happened in 21 there, we brought in the site number three beside it. And when we look at what's happened with the sheep numbers, look at, there is a lot of movement of sheep between sites. They're moving on to neighboring sites and that. So I suppose the point here is we can't look at any one of these sites individually, because if we have looked at that and said, okay, site number one, you have enough sheep, you need to increase the numbers, we would have created overgrazing problems unless we can tackle the numbers of sheep coming in from surrounding sites as well. So we have to have a look at it in a bigger site or a bigger area rather than just um, individual lips plot numbers. Just, uh, it's a little, a little bit confusing there, but that's an area between the Wicklow Gap Road in the north and the Sally, or the Sally Gap Road in the north and the Wicklow Gap Road on the south. There's over 10,500 hectares in that. There's 31 separate lips plot numbers so for uh, BPS, and there's not a fence to be seen anywhere on that. So it's completely wide open. And actually, when you go to the, the roads at either end, there's no fences there either. So those sheep can go from the Den of Amal all the way up through here, up into Tala with no fences. So when we're planning these uh, uh, sheep numbers, I think we need to look at it in a bigger uh, sense that uh, looking, trying to start and plan the sheep numbers at individual lips plot area is, is not practical. So that's all I'll say about that. But just to, to 
why they are to give you an idea of some of our learnings to date uh, from the Suez project. Um, look at what we found is payment for actions alone provides no incentive to farmers. When we started the Suez project, we were paying the farmers to do actions and that. And what we find like uh, the people who are going to do this work, a lot of them are probably working off farm or working part time and that. They're taking time off elsewhere to come and do this work. So on its own, we need something else, or it's not enough. We need something else to encourage them to be part of it. If we give farmers a free decision, they'll take on the actions that favours production rather than what favours habitat improvement. So uh, we can't, like uh, I say, if we give them free choice, so we do need to have some control over that. I suppose the other big learning here would be that grazing management is quite complicated. It takes a long term time to change. If we're starting talking about change in types of sheep, that's a breeding program. And again, that will take a long, long time to, to uh, uh, implement. Okay, so just the, the final just take topic I want to just briefly mention is uh, results-based payments. Because we found farmers, we needed some additional uh, incentive to get them involved. We looked at this, uh, the Department of Agriculture are saying that they're going to use a results-based payment element in the new schemes. So we had a look at it. And here's kind of what we expect to see uh, an area, somebody goes out, walks it, scores it, uh, and, and there's what we have. now. This is in one of our sites, there's 370 hectares in it. And if we give it an average score over the whole lot, that's what we have. But what we actually did was we went out and we mapped it out based on the different areas of the hill. I wouldn't lose uh, too much sleep over the actual numbers across the bottom. There are a number of other um, score-based payment systems and ways of calculating them out. Look at, there might be slight difference with them, but basically what they all do is they score or they rate the hills from very, very bad up to very, very good. Uh, so uh, I wouldn't waste too much time comparing them. If you look at the map we have here, you can see on this hill, we have a range of things from very bad all the way up to very good. And I think that gives you a very, very good picture that if we have a single average score of the whole lot, uh, it's, it's, it's um, not seen the same. The other thing is if we can break the areas down a little bit, it might be possible on some areas of that hill to have improvement and to increase the score on that area. But if we look out at over the entire area of the hill, it will be averaged out and it'd be nearly impossible to do works to raise the score over the whole mountain. So maybe breaking it down a little bit makes it more practical for it to have improvement. Uh, just the other thing, traditionally when you're talking about doing these uh, scores, habitat scores, you walk a transect through the site and uh, that. Now, when we look at the size of this, uh, there's 370 hectares in that. Uh, we have to remember the, the range in habitat types and also the, the topography up here. We have ridges and, and valleys and gullies and that, that if you were to just walk a transect through a site like this, that there would be so many things you would miss that you wouldn't see. So uh, if we are serious about having a habitat score system going forward, I suppose the key thing here is that we have to develop one that is suitable for the upland areas. We can't just copy one from the lowland areas that maybe might be appropriate to go out in a 10 or 15 hectare acre grass field to look around it. So if we're using it, we have to have one that's appropriate for the uplands. Now, the biggest issue, I suppose, with these habitat uh, payments or the habitat scores is things happen slowly in the uplands and uh, very, very slowly. We have some sites and if if we get the management right and maybe 10, 15, 20 years time, the sites will start to improve themselves. So things happen very slowly. But one of the things that can happen or we can change in the short term in the uplands is we can change the people, we can change the farmers, we can change what they are doing, their actions, their management, their farming systems. And maybe we should be looking at that as a result. Uh, so if we're talking about results-based, results-based doesn't automatically mean it has to be habitat score-based. So maybe the results 
that we should be looking at is the change in the farmers farming systems and habits and maybe that's what we should be looking to incorporate into some sort of a payment system okay so just the uh, last slide i have here now is just to say look at we've answered a lot of questions we've encountered a lot of things these are just some of the challenges going forward in terms of control uncontrolled burning we have bracken control especially if uh, azulox doesn't uh, goes off the market we have issues with gorse in terms of long-term control we can go in we control it now but if it's going to be back the same and again five to ten years time what's the advantage we have this issue with erosion up in the uplands we don't know what to do about it we've spoke to various organizations and there's no easy answers i'm talking about the areas that are already badly degraded but also more importantly even some of those areas that are in the balance and maybe if we can work with them now we can get them to start recover or if not the, the danger is that they'll end up in erosion and a final thing here is just areas that we can't restore to good condition and there's a lot of those we've encountered for various reasons maybe because of where they're located there's access issues there's health and safety issues and maybe it's just down to cost so if, if we can't restore them to good condition what do we want to do with them are we just going to ignore them pretend they don't exist just walk away let them uh, go their own way or um, do we want to try and direct them in some way now these are issues we don't have the answers to yet we will be hoping to be engaging with the other eip projects and the government departments over the year ahead to get answers to some of these because these are key questions that are going to dictate what the farmers actually do on the ground uh, and it will determine what the um the results of these schemes going forward is so i say this is something we want to look towards for the future so i've thrown a lot at you there but just the final thing i just say on this topic of or the 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 team this uh, talk today was lessons from uh suez and i suppose i had meetings with our operation group and various other stakeholders there just during the week just to prepare for today's meeting and the one recurring team kept coming back as the one thing that has been the real strength for us to deliver the sewers project is about people it's about people working together it's about the farmers coming together to form their farm their community groups it's about the farmers and the national parks and wildlife service and the environmentalists it's about everybody working in the right direction if we get everybody pulling together in the right direction those actions and stuff they will fall into place and we will achieve it thanks very much pat Thanks very much, Declan. Absolutely fascinating. Uh, there's a, a, a number of questions starting to come in there. I remind you to use the, the Q&A uh, function to, to, to submit your questions. Uh, I think that the, the theme around uh, working with people uh, and the establishment of, of groups in the commonage, it's, it's something that I think uh, uh, Catherine and yourself would have looked at in other countries and their experience with it. How big a part of the solution is is that and what do we need to do i suppose in future agri-environmental schemes and initiatives to, to try and and uh, increase the importance or the increase the role of that yeah um myself catch would have been on a, a couple of different trips up to the uk and over in wales and that and they have a tradition of community committees and crafting and stuff like that in those countries in Ireland, we've never had a, a, a tradition of that. Um, I remember back uh, when we first started talking about this, we met some of those farmers and the thing they said was, it was a, when we brought them in, it was the first time they were ever all sitting in the same room together to talk about the hill. They might have been at a funeral together somewhere or something like that, but it was the first time they ever all met together to talk about the hill. Look at, um, if you want 
commonly just if you want the people uh, to develop plans to re to manage, you have to bring them together. You can't go around and talk to 10 individuals. You need to bring them together. I think the format we have for the commonage groups, we have uh, spent a good bit of time on it. I think it's something that can be scaled up. These are practical. They're applicable right across commonages anywhere around the country. And it is quite easy. Like uh, the, We have the various templates. It, it would be possible to use them. And I think that's the basic building block. If you get that right, then you can start talking about doing the actions. But if you don't have that right, one or two farmers go up and start doing everything right. The other lads do nothing or do something in the opposite direction. You're at nothing. So they're, they're a foundation for colleges. You have to get that right first. Okay. A number of questions coming in there. You, you said you're, the, the, the project is due to finish at the end of this year. What happens? Uh, uh, what's your view of what will happen at the end of it to try and make sure that you don't lose the momentum that you've got? I suppose the department have proposed these new cooperation projects, uh, eight of those around the country. And I would be hoping that, uh, well, I suppose if you step back, the, the reason the EIPs were set up was to learn and that our learnings would contribute to the new uh, RDP program. So I would be hopeful that a lot of the learnings we have would feed into those new cooperation projects uh, for delivery. And as I say, th th there's a number of other ones and we all have different learnings. And, uh, it comes back to we're dealing with people and most of the solutions and the findings that we are getting are applicable across all the country, not just in our own uh, region. And uh, the mechanics of how all that works, I don't know. But look, we're concentrating on the actions and what it means to farmers and what they're actually going to be doing up there. As I say, that's, that's what we were asked to do and that's what we we're going to deliver. Okay, Catherine, a good few questions. Um, yeah, and, and a huge appreciation for the, the commonage groups, which, you know, is 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 a fantastic work that, that Suez is doing. And can you just confirm, Declan, that all the information and the good documents that you have are on your website? The uh, the guide to um, form, the, the, yes, it's up there. It probably wants to be updated a little bit over the next week now. That's our, our next job. We're going to update it. But most of that information is all available on our website, yes. That's grand, yeah. And um, just following on from that, Bobby Landers, who I know was involved in, in the, the beginning uh, with you, with the groups, he was just stressing that uh, what you said about um, the group identity and solidarity, he totally agrees with you and, you know, stressing that about. And um, he also was saying that having external non-Chagas people involved in the beginning, not to be seen as a Chagas group. And I suppose that's particularly Declan, where you were working and, and as a strong advisor in the area that, it, you know, the, the, the group was kind of a separate, as you said, you tried to give them ownership rather than your group. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And uh, Bobby was involved with me, like, and it was great to have the two different perspectives, like, because uh, he had the, the knowledge and he had the experience in terms of uh, people and bringing people together. And, and uh, I would have had the, the background in the um, sheep production. And what we found was farmers, they kept coming back to ask me technical questions and kept asking me technical questions, you know. So by having two separate people with two separate backgrounds, it made it much, much simpler to uh, keep them on track put them through the process and I'll say two people working together was uh, very very important for us yeah. and another thing about information there <clears throat> Pat before I go back to you maybe for a question or two is uh, Catherine Farrell was talking there about the in case project and that there's uh, very relevant papers to, to people on this call papers at catchment scale using the Dargal which overlaps with SUS but the, the, the teams are assessing the, the extent and condition of peatlands there and um, uh, evaluating ecosystem services 
and they're going to have something on carbon stock and emissions. So those papers are either out or about to come out. So keep an eye on that. And I'm sure there's a link there with uh, Jane Stout and no harm mentioning maybe that in two weeks time, Pat, we have Jane uh, valuing natural capital. And I, I expect she'll be talking about that in case project as well. Um, back to you, Pat, for a question, and then I'll look for some new ones. Yeah, the, uh, I suppose a, a number of questions coming in uh, in, in relation to the, uh, I suppose, the challenges. And if you were to pick out a number of the areas that you didn't manage to achieve what you hope to achieve, just to give people an idea of the, 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 the challenges that you faced. Okay, well, uh, as a general rule across all our sites, and they're all different, uh, but uh, the two big things we have to get right on our sites is to stop burning and uh, to get the sheep uh, grazing right. Now, I don't know, uh, even still I'm trying to figure out what the correct grazing for these sites are. One thing I do know is that somebody sitting at a computer somewhere can't sit down and magically work out a, a min-max number that's correct for the hill. The, the approach that we have taken, and it's actually coming uh, uh, true much better now is we have developed an app for farmers to record what's happening on the hills when the sheep goes up so we know exactly what's happening it's not just sitting down at the end of the year and filling up a form to say what they should have done so if we can build up a picture over the first year what is happening on the hills and uh, use that information then go out and see we'll look at is the hill overgrazed undergrazed well then we know we have to increase our sheep numbers or decrease them or we have to get them out at different times um, but uh, I suppose that's a long-term project that's not something we can solve in the short term because People, you can't just go down to the mart and buy an extra 100 or 200 euros and turn them out on the hill because where are you going to get them? Are you, how are you going to get them settled on it? So look at the long-term uh, thing here. We're not going to solve in the short term is um, the sheep and the, the grazing uh, management. In terms of issues that we can't do anything about, those erosion issues, uh, there are things we haven't been able to to uh, to sort we've spoke to various people about it you know to look for information we don't have research we don't have that much available here and probably any of the work to address those issues they're huge they're way beyond what farmers can do that's our biggest challenge i suppose okay there's a, a couple of questions in there about where the project fits and and i suppose looking forward uh, where you have um, a, a BPS payment, you have uh, agri-environmental schemes and you have, uh, have SUS and how that construct, does it uh, cause you problems and is there a better way of, of bringing the whole I suppose, support system together behind the dual objectives of supporting farmers to work in the hills and yeah. achieving uh, uh, better outcomes in the hills? Okay, well, I, I suppose if we look at the hill areas, um, just to give you an example, we had a fire on one of our hills just as it was starting to come in. And uh, we, we went out to look at it and I was explaining now to know, look at this is going to affect your payments that you're going to get back out of the sewers project and stuff. And we talked about it and we had a good conversation about it. And then just one of the farmers turned around and said, and will that affect our BPS payment? And I said, no, because it was within the legal burning dates and that, ah, oh, grand, it's not too bad. So, so look at, for farmers, we need to remember the big payments going into those farmers is through the BPS. That's the pillar one payments, okay? That's where the main payments is. Uh, I personally think that we need to incorporate those uh, pillar one and pillar two payments. There should be an environmental requirement, particularly in the uplands, because the payments in the uplands have risen massively over the last number of years with uh, convergence and stuff. So um, pillar one, pillar two, they, they should be uh, joined up thinking in terms of the requirements the farmers have to do. And actually one of the things I was disappointed with, with the proposals came out there for these uh, eco schemes and that, 
for all the payments that's going to be going out there on the mountains and on the upland areas, not one of the eco measures are uh, applicable to the upland areas. So I think it is something that we need to get much more joined up that pillar one and pillar two, the requirements, uh, they should be much more aligned with one another. Okay. Uh, a, a question there in, in relation to uh, uh, carbon and, and uh, uh, carbon measurement, is there anything going on or anything proposed in, in, in relation to, to looking at those, uh, uh, the, I suppose, the carbon retention in, in the uplands? Uh, we don't have any information on that. And actually, we've very little research in the past done on the uplands. And most of the research would have been done by Chagas back in Linan and that. And that would have been all centred around animal production as opposed to habitat management. So no, we don't have those figures. I was delighted to see Brian last week talking about the work that they're doing up in Caffrey and that, about actually starting to put figures on it. Uh, I think one thing we should be very wary of is when we talk about, there's a kind of a general feeling that we have the uplands there and there's loads of carbon being locked up there. But when we actually go out and look at it, the reality is quite different. And we do need to actually start looking at it and start put figures on this. Uh, but at the minute, we don't have it. It's way beyond what SUAS can do. I don't know, it's possibly something the MPWS or some of those organizations should be looking into, but we don't have it. Okay, or some of the carbon observatory work may, may uh, move into that area. It's something we can talk about at a later age. Catherine, have you? Um, Declan, we have huge numbers of questions. So if you can just be brief and um, on some of those, some of these ones. Um, okay. Is, is so do farmers lamb outdoors is predation an issue and a linked question are you doing have you done anything with predator control uh, predator control no um i suppose one of the big issues we have from predators i suppose you is include the deer in that. Uh, there is a project looking at that at the moment in Wicklow, but as regards predation, no, we haven't done it. Farmers, they don't lamb on the uplands. They have lowland. Some of them lamb indoor, some of them lamb outdoor, but most of them don't lamb up on the hills. Okay. Um, your approach to managing erosion, and again, a linked one, how do you separate natural from man-made? But sure, why do you have to separate it? Look at your, regardless of what has caused this erosion, what's coming around, look, kind of, we have to look to the future. So regardless of what caused it, um, we have to look at ways to address it. Now, uh, some of those, say, for the walkways and that, that's about water management and stuff like that. That's more easy to control. But when we have uh, huge areas of mountains, uh, I'll say it doesn't matter why it was caused, like, uh, it's the same challenge as trying to resolve to, to stop it. That's a good point. Um, how, do you, um, how do you manage non-active shareholders? Uh, that's one of the real strengths of the college groups that uh, if we can get all the shareholders come together uh, what, do you, what do you term a non-active shareholder is it somebody who doesn't put it down on their area aid farm or is it somebody who doesn't put any sheep out or is it somebody who does no work the group has the facility to do that and if there's certain people in the group if they don't want to put up sheep and we have to remember some people for various reasons are not in position to do it like uh, the group has the the power to decide well that's okay you don't want to put sheep up we can put, keep extra up for us and that so i think the group themselves can decide all that they have that okay. power and that's the big strength of it if production is the only goal will this result in less favorable eco ecological condition production um what's your term of production we're trying to change that attitude that people think production has been uh, lambs you're selling off the hill but production if we can change the farmers to think that look at production what you're going to, if, if the payment is going in for delivering a habitat and better quality habitat, surely that should be seen as your product. So if we can make that change across in the farmers' minds that look at, that produce the habitat as opposed to um, uh, producing lambs for sale, uh, well, I think we've answered the question there. So um, look, it all depends on what way we put the money into the scheme. The scheme money goes into the farmers. 
we can dictate what the farmers produce, we can dictate what we deliver. Okay, Pat, have you on? Okay, yeah, I think one key uh, question there, and it's raised by, by uh, uh, Mary Roach from uh, Mayo, a big problem in the West is the older age profile of farmers. Uh, have you a way of getting the next generation to become involved uh, and to keep uh, the, the, the work moving forward? Okay, um, age profile is, a, is an issue across all farm, and there's many issues <laughs> involved in that. Okay, in reality, on a lot of these farms where the farmers are old, there's somebody else there doing the work with them. There's a son or a neighbor or their, or their uh, nephew or someone involved. What we are finding with the college groups is the college group has the facility that if somebody is not able to do something, they can hire somebody in or they can organize among themselves that there's one fellow going up to look at the sheep. Maybe he can look at the sheep for the other fellas or mind them on the hill and uh, that sort of thing. So, uh, I suppose to change the age profile of farmers involves changing, going back and changing the whole cap uh, system in terms of how we support farmers. That, like, one of the things we forget is we keep talking about we want new farmers coming in, but for every new farmer we come, we want to come in to get in. Somebody else has to leave the system. So if we're talking about getting new farmers in, we have to get the old farmers out. So we do, and that's kind of the hard part. Within our college groups, I think we have the facility there that uh, farmers can work among themselves and uh, where there's a problem, uh, they can pay or uh, subcontract out to a certain works among one another. There's a, a, a question or a comment in there in relation to the importance of, say Wicklow in particular as a source of water and, and, uh, the, the, and I suppose a, a, maybe a comment from you about the, the role of, of Suez in terms of protecting water because you have the, the, the various reservoirs which are uh, serving Dublin uh, arising in Wicklow. So maybe that's a, something that you're, you're taking on board. Absolutely. Like from, from the start, look, it's about the habitats, but we always see water quality is a big issue. Now, uh, I suppose in reality, what can we do about it? And uh, the number one thing is if we can get the habitats functioning right, that that's going to deliver the, the the, the water quality. So by having good quality heatland and uh, bogs, that that'll filter the, the water, it'll slow it up coming down. In terms of the issues that have arisen, that's why we started looking with the planting of the trees. We wanted to do some gully planting for to give extra stability, prevent erosion around the, the, the streams and stuff and extra bit of filtration. Uh, again, I suppose if we can get the the, the habitats working right, that's how we uh, improve water quality. But it's a major issue. And I suppose if you come up some of the roads, even up into the Wicklow Hills, and on really wet, heavy days, you can see the colour of the water coming off the hills. It is that brown colour. Uh, the only way we can stop that is to address the, the erosion on the tops of the hills. And as I say, um, that's why we're looking at it. So get the habitats working right. Uh, it, it's part and part. You can't identify, you can't separate it out separate. It's all one big package of work up there because it's the same ground. We have, a, 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 I suppose, a question, in, uh, and it goes back to some of the, the, the advice you might have. We have the, the proposal there for the cooperation projects, uh, which will work in those uh, particularly upland habitat areas uh, from 2023 on with a, an agri-environmental uh, results-based uh, uh, scheme. If you were to be an advisor to, to the Department of Agriculture for, for two minutes, what would be the key messages that you would give them in terms of how those cooperation projects might be set up? Well, I think the proposal to have is in terms of the regional areas, uh, that comes back. One of the big strengths of these EIP projects is that we're all local and like 
we started sat down to look at the, the, the issues in Wicklow, Dublin Mountains. So uh, our we, we weren't worrying about what was happening in the west of Ireland. So we were looking at specific issues. So when we break it down, it's very difficult to have one scheme that's going to cater for every eventuality across the whole country. So the fact that they're local, uh, I would hope that the department would uh, allow each of those projects to have different measures uh, and different approaches to what is... Uh, appropriate in the different regions. Uh, one thing I do also think is that we have to, like when people talk about these habitat score-based payments and if there's low scores, people get no money. We have to be very conscious here that some of our most important areas we need to get in are the degraded areas, areas that are in poor quality. And we have to remember that we have to have sufficient incentive for get those farmers in. But I think the local element that have uh, measures that are specific and appropriate for the local areas, and also the, the local relationships. As I said, when we were working between the farmers, MPWS, planners, ecologists, that, that local element to try and keep people in the local area, you build that trust much quicker, so you do. And that's very important going forward. Pat, I have a linked one to that there about the, the, the areas that are in poor condition. With the increased payments through convergence for uplands in poor condition, make it more difficult to um, engage in the, the agri-environment um, cooperation measures. Well, uh, I suppose if we, if we look back uh, on loss, we would have individuals in the upland areas that could be getting 15 or 20,000 uh, on large scale sites out of the BPS payments. And we were expecting them to jump through hoops for to get maybe four or 5,000 out of the, the loss. So I think there's a, a disconnect there. So uh, if you increase the payments that the farmers get in pillar one, well, that reduces the need for them to get money from pillar two. So it'll probably, yes, it can make it worse. Um, how amenable are farmers to dam blocking, to blocking drains? Uh, look, at once we explain out what we want to do and all the rest and why we're doing it. Uh, and uh, I suppose the other thing is if it, it comes back to this, this question is also of uh, production versus habitat. And if the farmers think that they're getting their payments going to go up because they have better quality habitats by putting these dams in, I think that makes it much, much simpler to, for the farmers to accept it. Um, other than that, uh, dams will wet the area, so maybe they're going to lose a bit of grazing in that. But I think if it's if it's sold in the way that, look, at, they're, they're going to enhance the hill, enhance their payments, we, we won't have a problem. That's what we're finding with them. And another management one there. Any, any thoughts or work on, on the fenceless management of the collars? Yeah. Um, we have cattle out on two open hills and uh, there's no fences. And look at the thoughts of getting the farmers to go up there to put up fences to fence these in. We can't use temporary fences up there, let your fence wear, because we have such a problem with the deer that they'll come in and they'll pull them down. So we use the, we've started using the collars, the GPS collars on the cattle and open hills. Our aim is to use them for fencing, to, to confine the animals in certain areas. We have had a whole grazing season on them now, and they have been very, very successful in terms of keeping the cattle on the hills. And we can actually uh, use them to move cattle into separate different areas for grazing. Our plan now uh, this year is we're going to try uh, moving the cattle on one of the sites into an area of millennia, so moving into a more restricted area for a certain period of time to see what sort of effect we can have. But they work very, very well, very simple, uh, makes it practical. If the farmers had to go up there to put up fences, it just wouldn't happen. So it's pretty a, good. A question that has arisen in, in other areas and just wondering, is it, is, is it relevant to yourselves? There's the, some concern about where you have cattle in, in upland areas that particularly where they're going in for the winter into slatted units and that there may not be enough uh, uh, land spread area so that there's significant volumes of, of slurry maybe going on, on small areas. Is there any concern in relation to that 
where you're reintroducing cattle into the, the, the upland system? Well, I suppose we, we're looking at very extensive systems and on uh, three of our sites, the cattle are there all year round and they just come down to the lowland for a short period. But uh, look, at we have a history of having suckler cows, mainly suckler cows and cattle in the areas anyway. Uh, most of the farmers would have lowland enterprises, so that's not an issue for us. Uh, and our aim is relatively, we're, we're not going with big numbers in the short term. We're low number, sustainable long term and spend most of the year on the hill. Okay. So I think we're, we're going to have to leave it there. I think just one of the, the comments that we, we'd have to make is the, the, the level of appreciation that's come in in, in the, the yeah. questions and comments for, for first of all, the, for the work that you're doing, and second of all, for the presentation that you've done here this morning. I think it was really clear, really insightful, and, and I think a lot of people really appreciate the insight that it's, it's given to them as to what's going on in, in, in those hill areas. So thank you very much, Declan, uh, for that. Uh, it, it, it's really, really appreciated. And I can see that uh, there's a lot of work for you and your colleagues this, this year in relation to the, the work working with the Department of Agriculture to try and design what the, the cooperation projects are going to look like, which will, I presume, take this work forward for, uh, uh, into future years. So and can I just say a huge appreciation for Declan in particular? was coming through there in the in the in the comments thanks very much okay so so thanks Declan so just to to, to finish just a, a reminder that uh, our, our uh, webinar next week is managing red clover on dairy farms and that's going to be given by uh, Dr James Humphreys so the whole uh, um, uh, uh, issue of improving our, our clover management in, in the context of what's happening both with, with uh, uh, nitrogen availability and, and price and also our requirement to reduce our losses of nitrogen is a, a, a hugely important issue. And just to finish, I'd like to, to thank our, our backroom team of uh, Yvonne Marr and, and uh, uh, Andy Boland. And with that, uh, I'll just say thanks very much for, for being with us this morning and hopefully we'll see you again next week. So goodbye. Thanks. You've been listening to the podcast version of the Chagisk Signpost series, the weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. Don't forget to join us live every Friday morning for our latest webinar. For more, visit chagisk.ie. And you can also rate, review and subscribe to the Signpost series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Mark Gibson and thanks for listening.